This episode of the Business Samurai Podcast is brought to you by Lamar Marie Popcorn. You can get now one bag and get a second bag for half off with the code BARKER at checkout. So if you like your snacks a little sweet, a little salty, a little mixture of both, go check out LamarMarie.com and all of the flavors that they have for your next snacking sensation. That is LamarMarie.com with code BARKER at checkout for buy one, get one, half off. If you know your business needs to be more secure, but don't know how it drives value, and you hate all of the technical mumbo jumbo, then you are in the right place. Welcome to the C Word for Business podcast, where cash is king and the C stands for cyber. The only cybersecurity related podcast aimed at you, the business leader, to cut past the jargon and help you with cyber risk management in terms you will understand, business. You will learn the best tech related metrics to track, how communication is the lifesaver when it comes to cyber, and how good policy will fix the weak link when it comes to security. People. Listen in on conversations with world-class business leaders and how they manage risk. We will deconstruct their processes on how they choose to protect themselves, their team, and customers. You are stepping into a world of proactive business with your hosts, AJ Orr and John Barker. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the next episode of the C Word for Business podcast. Great to have you here listening. Got a, I think you've got a great show. AJ, good to see you again, my friend. You as well. You as well. Really looking forward to this one. I think we've got some great topics to talk about and bring some enlightenment to the people out there. Me as well. Uh, absolutely. Do you want to introduce the, the, the three topics we've got, we got kicking today? Absolutely. Absolutely. So today we've got three articles, mm-hmm. as usual, that we're going to run through. Um, the first one is around... Mm-hmm. Uh, the K-12 Cybersecurity Act. I don't know if you've heard about it, but I hadn't heard about it up until this article, and I think it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So we're going to break that down for you and kind of give you our two cents on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also going to talk about the federal's uh, push to get away from passwords. So no more passwords is kind of their initiative and what they're trying to push out there. So we'll talk about that. And then finally, and probably the, the best, I think both of our favorites, and what we're really looking forward to in, into this conversation with is is there honor amongst thieves and how, how cyber criminals are actually holding each other accountable to the things in which they do. So we'll, we'll touch on that. We'll get into it. But first and foremost, let's go ahead and kick it on into the first one, which is the K-12 Cybersecurity Act. Sounds good. And as usual, we'll have the links to the articles in the, the show notes below if anybody wants to go read these in, in detail. So I'll give the summary of the first one here. It's the K-12 Cybersecurity Act signed into law. Uh, essentially, there's going to be four main objectives, and this was a uh, Biden administration. Uh, this was introduced by the U.S. representative out of Rhode Island, James Langevin, something like that. Essentially, he... Uh, I'll let you do these. Yeah. <laughs> I will mess up the names. So, uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, has been uh, uh, tasked to conduct a cybersecurity risk uh, for schools K-12. through and they've got 120 days to act. And there's essentially four things that they're going to do. Uh, st- just pre- designing a study for this. They're going to present their findings to Congress uh, with the second objective being to get some guidelines that the schools can follow uh, to mitigate digital risks. CISA will use the surveys. Uh, I guess this kind of looks to be the, their main thing, according to this article, to, to develop some guidelines for online school training toolkits that the schools can implement for better security. Once they do that, they're going to have all the recommendations. They're going to build the toolkit and then make these things publicly available through the CISA website. And if you weren't familiar, just a little DV, uh, caveat, there's a lot of toolkits on uh, CISA's website 
right now, uh, I know definitely some small business ones, because the schools are, as this, as this article indicates, they're still subjective to a lot of the same risks and threats that, you know, the businesses and the governments are with malware incidents and ransomware attacks. Uh, one of the big things that this article points out is the lack of cyber awareness and training, particularly at the teacher and administrator levels, your principals, your assistant principals. Um, and now that, you know, between COVID the last couple of years, it's, it's just got worse because the schools had to pivot very fast to an online environment or some version of an online environment uh, to it. That's just really did, you know, a threat exposure just really increased the threat landscape really increased for them. So this is something new that's done and they're going to try to get this study completed. It looks like in the next four months, I can go on a rant for this forever because my wife is an assistant principal and has been a teacher before that. I have intimate knowledge having assisted and helped her with tech related items and have seen this stuff up close and personal also with the community. But I'm gonna shut up and let you give your thoughts on this before I go on a freaking tear. I like this one. Um, so, so there's a lot of stuff that we can unpack on this one. And first and foremost is the fact of, I agree, I, I like the fact that they're bringing awareness that, hey, there's an issue that that schools need to be doing a better job of protecting data. Because if you think about it, you know, from a, a cyber criminal's perspective, schools have all of the sensitive information for all of our kids out there. You know, so, you know, you see uh, commercials about LifeLock telling people, hey, you know, monitor your kids' social security numbers because those things can be stolen. Well, where can, where's the easiest place to get all that stuff? School. A school has it all. It has, it has all of your all your kids' personal information. It has their medical history. It has everything in there. And so when you talk about identity theft and being able to protect that, or at least having a treasure trove of information easily at your fingertips, schools are, 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 are big targets. And so I appreciate the fact that they're bringing awareness to it. Now, here's where I disagree or where I, I differ from where they're at is that the federal government leading the charge on this? I don't know how that's going to work. I mean, I, I really, really don't. Um, one, does the CISA have the manpower to actually pull this thing off? I mean, let, let's be real here. I mean, with, I mean, you and I have done work in the DOD space, and we we know everything that's going on with the changes with CMMC and and the security requirements there. You know, so how are they going to tack this on top of an already stressed out infrastructure and already thin? Like, I, I just don't think they have the resources to pull it. But uh, you know, I think it's great if they that they're bringing aware. Uh, but then once again, where where does the onus fall to actually implement this stuff? Great that you understand we've got issues, but where, how do they go about fixing it? Because I don't know about you. Well, and, and actually, I do know. I know that you've got a lot of experience with this. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear your take. But most school districts don't have the people like they don't have qualified people, qualified IT people. And big enough IT teams, let alone cybersecurity, because that's a completely different skill set. And I think I think we need to make sure that that as executives that you guys understand that just because you've got an IT person doesn't mean that you've got a security person, because it's it's a completely different skill set. And there's different skill sets in the cybersecurity realm. You've got those that are really good at network security versus database and and application security. I mean, those are completely different things. But I, I digress. When it comes back to this, I I, I think. Once again, I think the article does a great job of, of creating the awareness. I think the federal government's, their intentions are in the right place, but I don't see the execution and the follow through. I don't see it happening. No, and, and I, like you, I agree. I, I think everywhere across the board, 
that there needs to be much more, uh, it, it takes the community to build a good cybersecurity program and everything is tied together. So like you said, the data that the school has, I don't know what else the school systems records may be tied into. You got your, you know, your local level, do they tie back into the state systems for reporting purposes when they talk about standardized testing? But what I have seen firsthand, they can't get IT right. They can't get technology right. And this is firsthand experience. You want to talk about rogue IT, you know, for those that are not sure about the term shadow IT or rogue IT, that would be where unapproved devices kind of enter the network because somebody just kind of does their own stuff. Well, I may or may not have been guilty of providing my wife some rogue IT because she didn't have it. Okay. Obviously I was guilty. But you were the perpetrator of the things that we hate the most. Yes. So she couldn't, she, she couldn't print. I was giving her printers to take in like old equipment that I had to tie in because she, she was having to print off like hundred page documents on an inkjet printer and they had a laser printer that was tied into the system. That, that's priceless. That is absolutely priceless. But I the, did not know that. Yeah. That was a long time ago. That was not recent for anybody listening. I, <laughs> uh, but the schools are predicated on a lot of free equipment and Google is a primary driver of that stuff. The, the, the two school systems I'm intimately familiar with, um, having seen their stuff up close and personal, they're highly reliant on Chromebooks, which they either get reduced or free from Google, which is great. I'm glad Google does that as well as the Google Classroom on, on that stuff. So a lot of the security from how they utilize Google Classroom that needs to be baked into there. But on top of that, you've already, you, you hit some of those points. You've got the school systems in most local communities, whether you knew this or not, are one of the biggest employers in most local communities. Think about it. I want you to think about how many elementary schools, how many middle schools, and how many high schools are there, and how much staff it takes to run those. Uh, my wife is an, as an assistant principal. They have a staff of 100. Now times that across, uh, now times that across, you know, how many of the schools are in the, in the current system. When we were in another community, the entire school department had four IT people, four, that was it. And so you're telling me, let's throw this extra requirement and it, yes, needed, but schools are funded locally. Right. So where, where's the makeup going to be with this? And then to make this matters worse, the, okay, D diving off slightly, Regu regulation. A lot of people sit there, oh, we need to cut red tape for regulation. You need to have rules to the game. So it needs to be very spotted, which specifically which regulations need to be removed when we're talking about a business environment. I kid you not, the amount of regulation that it takes to teach a, a five-year-old to read and do basic math is ridiculous when it comes to the amount of continuing education that a teacher is required to go through. For a lot of times it's the same stuff year in and year out for, for things that to me, it, it's overly educated, underpaid. And I, I don't think too many people would, would disagree with that. So now we're going to throw in, hey, now let's go do, yes, you need to do cyber training. Now we're going to make it, you know, coming out with some heavy handed approach to this stuff. Okay. Absolutely throw cyber training to teachers and awareness because now they're taking, doing work from home. They're taking kids' records probably home with them, yes. physical records <laughs> on top of that stuff. So now you've got physical security on top of digital security. But 
What are you going to take away to make their lives easier from the this, the dumb stuff that I've seen up close and personal? Why do you got to do that? I ask my wife all the time, why do you got to go through that again? You do this stuff day in and day out. That's not continuing, Ed. That's not advancing your skill. They're ramming down crap down your throat that you're already familiar with. So if we're going to start throwing stuff down with them, which is needed, we need to protect the stuff. I, I don't disagree. Um, can't, you know, whether CISA has the resources to pull this off. But at the at the local level where this needs to be executed with, it's going to be looked at as, oh, my God, we've got another thing. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, the biggest thing that I, I, I don't want to see happen is that <clears throat> that the federal government get involved with it and they, they create these mandates, you know, because we've, we've already seen it in the, in the DOD spot. And, you know, DOD, you know, rolled out CMMC, said everybody's got to get audited, this, that, and the other. And there was instant pushback from the industrial base that says, wait a minute, how are we going to do this? Who's going to pay for all of this? And so I see the exact same thing coming from schools in that, how are we supposed to do this? We don't have the, we don't have the knowledge. We don't have the resources from an IT infrastructure, you know, hardware networking equipment. We don't want, we don't have that. We don't have money for it. At the same time, we don't have the 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 intellectual resources and assets, the people, in order to to execute this thing and put it in place. And so, you know, to say to to I don't want to become a regulation. I want to become, hey, let's create some awareness. These are best practices. I mean, but we all, I mean, if, if you're in the security space, you know the best practices. I was like, this is this stuff isn't rocket science to to a degree. You know, there, you know. A lot of it's the, the, having the right tools, having the right people that can do threat hunting and things of that nature, you know, but I, I just don't want to see it coming down to a regulation because smaller, smaller municipalities, they're going to, they're not going to be able to meet it. So then what happens? And then who's going to hold them accountable? Who's going to come back and check this stuff? I mean, like we didn't even talk about that. Who's going to audit and validate and verify that these things are actually being done? Because they couldn't do it with the DOD and the, and the defense industrial base. So if you couldn't do it there, you're going to tackle schools now? Come on. That, that, that's my big thing. I, yeah. I think value and effort, they raise good points. Create awareness because we do need to protect our kids' information. Uh, schools are hot topic or, or hot targets uh, because of the information that they carry. But, you know, how, how, how are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? Right. So I, I think, you know, right before we move on to the next topic, I think I think this is the thing to track. You know, I think this is something we'll revisit for sure once the report comes out to see what their recommendations are. So, well, yeah, um, because don't, aren't they supposed to have this thing out in the next like four months, three days, 120 days? This was signed. <laughs> the end of December so, so let's see how, how many times this gets kicked down the road. <laughs> yeah, they can't even do an, an annual budget that's like part of their job or congressional level much less but anyway we digress All so right. what's, the, what's the over under on 240 days <laughs> <laughs> all right so moving on to the next one uh once again talking about the federal government here uh the federal CISO clarifies their support for standard uh for a standard that could make passwords a thing of the past so getting rid of passwords completely um, and I will be honest, uh, in, and I'm sure that that John will agree. We read this article, and it it it, it didn't read well. But the the intent and purpose was 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 basically this. You know, the the federal space, and if you've got any experience with the federal space, then you're familiar with cat cards. Um, and so the, the cat cards are what they use in order to access anything. And inside these cards are chips where, you know, it, it encrypts all your information and authenticates who you are. And so you 
punch that or plug that card into a reader anytime that you want to access federal equipment, you know, computers and things of that nature. Um, they've been around for years. Uh, we called when I was in the military, when I was in the army, uh, we called them smart cards and your smart card carried everything, your bank balances, and everything else like that you paid with it and everything else. Uh, and so same thing, same concept. Uh, been around for years. The one big advantage that they're saying that comes with these cat cards is that it gives you the ability to, if, if, if one's lost or stolen, you can turn it off and everybody in the entire organization and those connected to the organization know that's an invalid card. So it reduces the possibility of stolen or lost or stolen credentials. So I get that. And I get it in the federal government space. Where I don't get it in context of this article is they talk about pushing it into the private sector. And so with that, I'll go ahead and kick it over to you, John, let you give your two your, your hot takes on this thing uh, before I monopolize my position on this one. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you were, you were a little bit more fired up on this one uh, like I was on the, on the previous topic. Uh, I'm all for creating a more frictionless workflow for, for individuals. Um, I've seen some of the some of the tech that's out there as we're trying to move away from passwords. Still, do you know? Hear people all the time can't remember the passwords. They're still not using password managers and, and things of that nature. And I know that the federal government has started consolidating at least their authentication through certain portals like login.gov. I've had to go through that process personally myself. Still requires a password. Um, and I've used other programs that uh, where I I personally have seen you know. Obviously, I've been around people that have used cat cards. I've never had one myself, but where I've had to have digital certificates on my computer. So on top of my, you know, username and password, I had to have the ECA certificate on the computer as a as a third option. So I get all that stuff. It, it's going to be what's the cost of this? What's going to be the retraining purposes? The government has a lot of legacy systems that are out there. And I kid you not, uh, I've heard the stories of, you know, you got very small teams. So you think the government is this big, gigantic, you know, conglomerate, but when you start really driving down into silos of little, these little small functional areas, they may be very, very small teams when you think Razor about them. Words. So yeah. some of these legacy things was like two people wrote the software over the course of a weekend, and then it kind of morphed over the next 10 years into some stuff. I've seen, I've seen what that looks like. So how, how is the government looking to integrate this new technology into a lot of legacy stuff without requiring a, a wholesale change of some of these programs that have been in place for a very long time? Um, that I know, because I've seen them, again, that have even like cross-site scripting errors, SQL injection errors, you know, I don't not get to, but you know, not get too far in the weeds, don't want to get into the weeds at all, but basically really common coding, you know, security issues that, is this are those things going to be rectified in that process that will this even work with the new technology that's coming out there you know how are they going to aim this and prioritize this type of stuff so and then to talking about moving it to the public sector again great i think instead of having cat cards i don't understand that it's going to be your phones you know everybody's phone at some point will probably be the third party identifier but that's kind of the way i, I view this stuff i like the frictionless thing um, NIST has changed their, their standards with what password policies should be o over time. Uh, but take it, man. I mean, I know I, this, this is bugging you. So, well, it, it, because, because I, I get it and I fall back into the same, same position that I fell into when it came to the school districts, which is great that you're bringing awareness because as a society, we have weak password habits and, you know, 
whenever they still post out the list of the most, the worst used passwords, and you still have people out there using password as their password or password one, two, three, four, you know, people still use it. So we're creatures of habits. We have bad, bad password habits. I get it. I get it. So how do we combat that? Well, you can teach people to make more complex passwords. I agree with the NIST new uh, rollout where they say, you know, get away from changing your password every 90 or 160, 180 days or 120 days, I think, you know, depending upon where you, what, what you were in, uh, you know, change your password every three months. That's tough, man. Uh, and not being able to duplicate it for six cycles, you know, that used to be kind of the, the, the rule of thumb, but now we've realized that the longer the password, the better. And so using past phrases and, and not changing them so often, because by forcing people to change their passwords often, because it's hard for them to come up with stuff that they can remember, that's why they were making easier passwords to crack. And so I, I, I get it. So we've got an issue when it comes to passwords. So how do you get around it? Um, the idea of the cat card is, is, is really no different than going back to USB dongles as a, as a second form of authentication. But like you said, why do I need that whenever I've got this? You know, I can set up multi-factor authentication. I can get an authentication code sent to my phone. Everybody has a phone. I just don't see how you roll out or why you would need to roll out this massive of a system, you know, it, it's already it already exists in the in, in the government sector. So I, I I get that, but in the private sector, it doesn't make sense to me because you're 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 trying to shove something down, or the idea is to push something down or an ideology down, where you know it's a hard enough time getting people to to really turn on two factor authentication on all their stuff. You know how, how much that would would simplify the the risk or reduce your risk when it comes to you know credential har credential harvesting and things of that nature. Turn on two factor authentication. Almost every application out there nowadays has it built into it, and it'll authenticate to your phone. And there's plenty of authenticators out there, so uh, it's an easy solution. So I don't understand why the federal government is pushing this whenever there's already an easy solution out there in the in the market space. That's that's the reason why I'm upset with it. And not really upset with it, but just I'm like, yep, this is another thing where they they're they're, they're focusing their efforts in the wrong space because there's already a solution out there. Uh, we just got to get people to understand the value of it so they actually start to use it and take advantage of it. That's it. Yeah, and, and I'm going to take this to a super high level. So if, if you're in, uh, kind of in the business space and you're listening to this, uh, I want you to think about authenticating uh, who you are based on the three different types that are out there that are taught. It's one of the, it's a core fundamental. So there's three types. There's something you know, there's something you have, and there's something you are. So you think about your, your passwords, you think about these cat cards as something you've had, and then you have, you know, fingerprint readers, you know, retina scans, uh, palm readings, if you've ever went, uh, as I just make my camera go nuts, that's shaking my hand at it. Um, <laughs> do you find it funny? Because I keep doing this during tests. So if you happen to be watching this on YouTube, uh, because I talk with my hands a lot, my I've got a tracking camera and it, I make it have a mind of its own. But anyway, those are the three fundamentals when you think about passwords. So they're in there in the two different types. So you got two factor authentication, which can be two things that, you know, two of the same of those and multi-factor authentication would be a combination of two different of those types. So definitely think about that, you know, you know, going forward as you're, you're looking at your own authentication principles, I would say, regardless of whatever the government decides to do and then reverse themselves, you know, a year later. As they tend to do. But <laughs> But I think I think you hit the nail on the head, which is at the end of the day, 
this is a risk mitigation factor. You know, when we start talking about passwords and understanding that, you know, most organizations and most employees, let's not even put the organization level, let's go down to the, to the individual user level. Users have a tendency to have weak password habits. Yeah. It's just, you, you can't, you can't get around all of that. The best of training can't get around all of that. And so the way that you mitigate that, once again, mitigating risk here is to use multi-factor, two-factor authentication uh, because, you know, a, a, the way that I like to describe it to, to executives is you know, treat it as an early warning detection system. You know, if somebody actually happens to steal your, your login credentials, so they've got your username and your password, two-factor authentication lets you know that somebody else has your username and password because they're trying to use it to access an account because you get an alert on your phone that says, hey, here's your authentication happen. code. I had it happen to me. I use like a lot of people in the in the government, particularly the Marines. Uh, they use Microsoft Office 365. Yep. I went through a, uh, a few weeks ago. I went through a period of it was 24 or 48 hours where every couple of hours somebody was trying to ding me into there. And luckily, I have you know I've got multi-factor authentication. It requires a face scan for me to authenticate. So for you to get into my office, not only do you have to have the credentials, you would have to kidnap me. To, to use my face to, to get in there. But because I had that, I would just look at it and laugh. Like, I actually posted something on LinkedIn about this going, it was like, not today. Not. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and that's what it is. And that's why, that's why I tell executives. It's the early word in detection system that you don't really have to pay ongoing costs for. Um, yeah. Because it, it's the easiest way to combat uh, weak password use within your organization. It's such an easy way to add alert protection. But we can talk about that forever. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh man, I'm ready for this next one though. As we're as we're as we're winding down here, this is a good way to end the. End the I will let you take the first crack at this one. Yeah. So so this is from darkreading.com, and I, I've cracked up every hide it uh, every time I, I've read it, which I've read this a bunch of times. Uh, dark web has its own people's court, and it starts out with going, uh, "There may be no honor among cyber thieves, but they do appear to obey underground rules." So let's see, I want to actually just read this. An analysts counted over 600 threads pertaining to cases that have been filed in these underground courts. The amounts at dispute in such cases typically range from a few hundred to a few thousand dollars through a handful of involved disputes over much higher sums. Uh, for instance, one group was sued for $2 million for living up to an agreement involving the hacking and encryption of data of a US-based school system, which ties back into our first article. Uh, and they say it happens all the time. The system uh, that they actually will pay, they get into these quote unquote dark web court systems where somebody pays a group to, to help them uh, accomplish their mission. And if somebody doesn't pay up or execute, they take them to the people's court. Uh, one of them, uh, one of the cases that was being monitored uh, was complaints against the group that did the Colonial Pipeline, the Dark Side Ransomware Group. Uh, they were ransomware as a service. And they were seeking payments from some of the people that have packed out, but they, you know, they had to go into hiding. And so they had to go to these forums. These administrators went to these forums to get this resolved. Uh, it says when a decision is in favor of the plaintiff, the defendant has a set amount of time to make amends or face the process, process prospect of being banned from any future activity on the forum. Uh, typically well-established cybercrime operators make a Bitcoin deposit into an escrow account as proof of their ability to pay for a service and threat actors are paid from these accounts when a dispute is settled in their favor. 
And apparently to really get through this, uh, they use the public uh, forums, the other criminals in there to kind of weigh the evidence of whatever is presented in there to help uh, make the decision. And if found guilty, the accused can be banned from the community, placed on a public wall of shame and have their bad reputation shared within other underground syndicates. I love it. Awesome. And I can just hear Judge Wapna and <laughs> the entire people's, you know, the people's court show for those of you old enough and see AJ, you, you know, we are with our bald heads. Um, yeah, theme running through my head, man. I found this absolutely insane. I, I absolutely love this article. I absolutely love it. Um, for, for, for two points. One, it's just hilarious. I mean, the fact that that criminals are taking other criminals to court saying, hey, look, man, you sold me a bad piece of malware. This malware was supposed to do some stuff and it didn't do what it was supposed to do. And I wasted all this time and effort. Like, <laughs> that cracks me up. But but even more so, it highlights the point that, that we try to tell people all the time and try to tell executives all the time. Cybercrime is a business. It's not a, it, this, this is stuff, I mean, they are working really hard. They have affiliate networks. They've got... <laughs> ransomware as a service. I mean, come on now. This is big business. So so they're treating it like a business. They're sharpening their tools. They're, they're constantly looking for new and better ways to, to enhance and get better at their craft. And yet many executives aren't giving cybersecurity. How are they going to mitigate these risks? They're, they're not giving it enough attention. You know, cybersecurity is not a set it and forget it thing. It's an ongoing practice. Why? Because criminals are treating it like a business so much so that they're taking others to court to get their money whenever they buy something that doesn't work. That just kills me. That kills me. It's just, imagine if everybody ran themselves that way. I'm going to just get a group of random, well, I mean, I, you know, let's get a group of people together and say, y'all decide. Abide by it because if you're not, you're getting shamed. Hey, it's the it, it's neighborhood rules. I mean, go back to the to sixties and seventies, man. I mean that, that that's the way it was in, in the neighborhoods. It was like, hey, so and so did this. Oh, he did that. What? I mean, word got out on the street. Your name was mud. I mean, that's that's just the way it works. I just think it's hilarious that criminals are now holding them. They're like, hey, man, we have to hold ourselves to a certain standard here, like. I expect this malware to, too, man. We're professionals ourselves, you know. I didn't get an ROI on that malware. I didn't get my yeah. ROI. <laughs> I think uh, it, it also reminded me of uh, the the fourth Die Hard movie. If you ever seen it, the Live Free, I think it's Live Free or Die Hard with uh, uh, it was Bruce Willis and Justin Long. Justin Long was the hacker, and the group that was doing the entire shutdown was outsourcing little snippets of the code for specific functions. And then they were going around blowing them up, of course. So we're, I don't think we're at that level yet. Uh, but I, I imagine if you didn't pay your Bitcoin bill, uh, yeah, they might start blowing each other up. We we could get there, but we are at the point where they're where where they're obviously outsourcing their criminal activities. They say, "Hey, I don't need to bring this in house. I'm gonna outsource." Is that like, is that like plausible deniability? You run it through the intermediary thing like a mobster type of. Like, they're, they're they're mitigating their risk. <laughs> they're four steps away. <laughs> I just thought that article was, a, you know, I, I was cracking up. You cracked up. It was a good way to end it. it a, we typically record these shows on a, on a Friday, so it's a it's a good way to kind of end the week on. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. You get hit with the ransomware. You get your, your stuff locked out and pay. It's that's not fun. But you know, cybersecurity in and of itself can't be always taking a hammer and beating it over someone's head. You got to find some bright spots in it. There's a reason why I think we, you know, we're all involved in this. It's a it's a communal effort, and these types of things. I, I mean, I, I guess to a degree can be considered ridiculous. <laughs> but oh. You know, find find the silver lining and, and finding some enjoyment in what you do. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, this article, while, while we joke and we've had fun with it, it really does point out the fact that criminals are treating this like a business. And as as business executives ourselves uh, and, and those listening in the, in the C-suite and business leadership roles, you know, we need to, you, we need to take this seriously, you know, because they are. You know, they're taking it very seriously. They're outsourcing their resource. They're outsourcing the efforts that they need. They're not bringing it in house. I mean, everything that we do and that we think about as business owners, they're doing it on the dark side. And, and that just amazes me that, that there's that level of sophistication, that they're actually operating in that sense. And then now they've gotten to the point to where they're holding themselves accountable for it. So while it is funny on one side, on the other side, it's, it's actually kind of terrifying because there's some organizational structure that's starting to take place. And if they coordinate all these attacks, it could be scary. And so that's why we need to take it serious. That's why in a joking manner, we bring this information, this content. That's why we do what we do to keep it light, wholehearted, easy to understand and digest, but at the same time, paint the picture and, and raise awareness that says, hey, look, we should pay as businesses and business leaders. We need to do a little bit more when it comes to cybersecurity to make sure that we're protecting ourselves and our businesses and the employees and the, and the people that we work with. Nope, absolutely. And I think with that, I think it's time. It's uh, it's beer 30 somewhere. It is. Here. Uh, so I'll catch you on the next one. I think uh, I think we may be lining up for our, our, our first our first guests. I'm looking forward to that. It'll be fun. Same here. All right, man. I'll catch All you right. on the next one. Next time.